Welcome to Where Wine Takes You, a wine podcast that keeps it real with producers, growers, anyone in the biz that can share with us what makes the wine we love so special and the place we grow it in so special. And when that wine region is just killing it and doing it better and more different than anyone else, people pay attention. That place is Paso Robles, and those people come here to share. I'm your host, Adam Montiel. Lots of great feedback on our last episode with Riley and Maggie of Hubba and Alta Kalina. I had so much fun and laughed so hard. Probably got like two years added to my life. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't. If you have, go grab your partner's phone or your parent's phone, whoever. Open the podcast app and rate, review, and subscribe. We are at episode 44. Can you believe it? We've been so thankful for the growth of the show, but to see this podcast be in the top 10 of wine podcasts in the country, we are humbled, and it is all because of you. So thank you. Today's episode, I'm excited. We're going to catch you up on the latest in Paso Wine Country with Joel Peterson. He's the executive producer of this podcast, as well as the executive director of Paso Wine. Some changes to some of these special weekends in Paso, I cannot wait to share them with you. We will get you all the 411 after the conversation with our guests today, which I'm also very, very excited about. Today, we're really getting into that idea of embracing reinvention. I mean, time changes, people change, right? Trends change. And today we're going to talk to one, a family that has been growing grapes for generations and welcoming some reinvention of their own when they started a wine brand. Also going to talk to a winemaker who has played a major role in some real heritage brands here in Paso at a critical time, not just for the brand itself, but for Paso as a whole, but not just that really embraced some personal reinvention as he evolved from making wine to port, now to spirits and more. First, Cindy Steinbeck of Steinbeck Vineyards and later Steinbeck Wines. She's part of a multi-generational family here in Paso that has been involved in the wine business for decades. Her father, Howie Steinbeck, has been mentioned on our show here with Gary Eberly and also has a rich history in Paso. Cindy will share with us a little of that history and also how they themselves embraced reinvention. Along with Cindy, we're going to talk to Steve Glossner, a man with a list of talents and a lot of Paso history. He's made wine at places like Justin, Adelaida, Halter Ranch, and more at critical times for all these brands. I'm also fascinated by someone who produces wine and then makes a successful port label with Paso Port, and then a successful spirits brand with Pendres, and how the creative process is always something that not only he still enjoys, but finds ways to push, push that envelope, push further into the unknown and unfamiliar to make it more known and familiar, understood, and another notch in the belt of things you can do well. I show up to Paso Port. It's on Booker Road. You drive up a long driveway, a beautiful view of Templeton and Paso. We're in this room that has it all. We're steps away from the big, beautiful still. They got a great couch and table I can set up on and chat with them both. Steve's better half Lola even fashions this table on top of a table thing so I can have my mic at the perfect level. So I am super comfortable and I am just ready to go. 
And yes, I even brought Georgie with me along this time. And Lola took some really cute pics of him while she was walking around with him during the show. I'll share those on Insta. And uh, we got it all today. We got wine, port, spirits. All makes for a very happy Adam. So give me that moonshine, we'll get by. We pass on around till the job is camped out in the trees. It will simplify good company. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. What's going good on? Again. Good to see you, Steve. How's it yeah. been, man? Good. It's been good. Yeah. It's been it's been really good. Keeping busy. You know, some changes here in the taste room that I think are all for the better. Yeah. Even though, you know, COVID wasn't exactly the greatest thing in the world, but the changes that we made to adapt to it were, were, were keeping in place. You saw a lot of people having to do, you know, like, take a drink every time you heard the word pivot, right? <laughs> I mean, but yeah, you saw a lot of people needing to do that, huh? Yeah. Yeah, and Cindy, I've never met you before. It's really cool Great to, to meet, meet you, you Adam. and I'm so incre- I'm really excited to like learn about just like the history because there's so much of it with the Steinbeck family, and and then I, I sit down with you. We're doing sound checks, and you know, I'm like kind of getting to know you, and you're like, oh, like we're like seven generations back, and been farming here since like Bible times. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> where, where where does the history for your family begin here on the Central Coast and, and in Paso? In Paso, in the Geneseo district named after Geneseo, Illinois, the town from which they came. Yeah. Oh, is that right? 1884, they moved out here, and they immediately planted wine grapes and started their own brand. And we have documentation that they sold wine even way back then. So were your, what are these, like your great, 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 or were these up there? It's my great, great. It's my dad's great grandparents, yeah. And they were like pioneers here. They sure were. There was nothing here then. I mean... So what years would this be? This would be like like gold rush time? Well, 1884 was just a little bit after after. that, right. Okay, wow. So Pazenti, I think, was 1882 Uh or York Mountain. Yeah, right. Think, right, right, right. Uh, yeah. And little do people know, you were making wine here then, weren't you, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> been here for a while. You've been, you're like, you're so OG here. And what's so cool is um, I've talked to different people and I've got a chance to interview people who've crossed paths with you. And it's so cool that like, you just go, oh my God, Steve is like, he's been everywhere. And at, at really incredible times, you know, like really pivotal times for certain brands. Yes, Kevin Bacon effect. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> it's like you and then maybe like Ken Volk. There's only a few names where like everybody has probably crossed paths with at some point. Does It doesn't begin at Justin for you, or does it? Uh, moving here, it does, yes. Okay, so... Moving to Paso Robles. Where were you before? I was uh, living up in Santa Rosa. Making wine? Making wine and going to school. And then, and then I moved down to Fresno, got a degree there, and moved out to Paso immediately after that in 93. So Paso's super new. There's probably less yeah. than 20 wineries. Yeah, exactly around 20. You know, and you start making wine for Justin. Mm-hmm. And that was that must have been pretty cool because you were at Justin at some magical times there. Like the, very other, early, the very early years. Yeah, but like the time, the, the times that really was 6, we credit for pieces. Justin being put on the map, right? I mean, those were integral times then. Yeah, I, you know, I think that we were um, part of a group of people that were getting the word out about Paso and getting some recognition for what we were doing. What does like Justin look like that early? Is it just like Justin, you and Deborah talking yeah. about things? I mean, is it literally just it's that three of us? Yeah. yeah. 
And Some the, people working in the vineyard, full-time yeah. people working in the vineyard, but basically the company was the three of us. And then did you have any idea that like some of these wines, some of these blends were going to be kind of like the calling card for Paso in a lot of ways yeah. for a long time? Well, their mission statement always was to do Bordeaux varietals, and um, I, th- I think the very first isosceles was uh, 1990. His, the first wines coming out of Justin were 87, and I started on board there in 93, and so that main blend um, had been released for a few vintages, but then, you know, over the years, the program built on Cabernet Sauvignon moved into a few other blends um, as well during the time period I was there. And then when you start to see, you know, you and Dabra and Justin are starting to see, whoa, this is going really well. We're doing something. Like, did you kind of have any idea, like, what you guys would maybe be on the foot of or, or be contributing to, at least? Well, I mean, they were always very driven individuals as far as um, promoting the brand. Uh, and Dude, um, he sounds like, I wonder if he, I've interviewed him a bunch. I like Justin a lot. Is he tough to work for? Were they, were, was it a tough gig? Um, a demanding well, I th- gig? I think anyone who has a very strong vision about what they what they want. I obviously was hired to make the wine. He is basically a sales and marketing guy, so we fought over dollars a lot. Right, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted all the dollars to come into the vineyard and winemaking side. And right. He wanted a lot of promotional um, you know, material and, and uh, traveling and things yeah. of that nature to get the word out about the brand. Okay, so from Justin, you go where? Adelaida. That was I mean, another brand at a time. So that was right at the time that um, John Munch's, uh, his wife, Andre, had passed. And they had had a brand called Le Cuvier. And um, John had decided that he was wanted to pursue Le Cuvier full time. And so John actually approached me and said, you know, Justin, the years I was at Justin, the growth was pretty phenomenal. We were growing at 50 to almost 100% every year. Wow. We started out at you know only five or six thousand cases, but there was phenomenal growth during that time period. And there's is that demanding to go through when it is when it, you're being told, "Hey, we're we're multiplying this like year after year after year." You're you're trying to replicate what you're doing, but you're working with brand new sources every year. And so, and do you, it, it do you feel yourself become, becoming less attached to it in a way? Um, in a way, you're like ah. It's it's a little bit like coming to work with a moving target. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think that um, the appeal with Adelaide was going back to a smaller production um, capacity and a more established wine program that really was in place and really wasn't changing rapidly. And really, one of the few brands that was probably there longer than you. Yeah, at Justin. I mean, like you're talking about, you know, Hoffman. Doing this exactly. since like the late sixties, right? I mean, yeah, a lot of a lot of the um, I mean, significant land holdings which really attracted me and I think that very vineyard driven wines yeah. was very attractive. John Munch, well. he was a fun interview. Yeah. Oh, I he bet. was awesome. I <gasps> bet. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so from Adelaide you go where? Uh, then to start the wine program at Halter. Halter Ranch. Yep. God, that place is blown up, huh? Yeah. Amazing. The Victorian. We stayed in that Victorian before. That place yeah, is so cool. Yeah. And I went to high school with Kevin, who's their winemaker now. Oh, okay. In, in Agora Hills. Uh-huh. I know, small world. So, what a cool project to start. I mean, that's... Yeah, they had Vineyard Professional Services had um, planted out the McGilvery Ranch, the old McGilvery Ranch, when Hansjörg had purchased it. But most of the blocks weren't producing yet. And interestingly enough, 
in 97, I believe, the McGilvery's approached Justin about growing grapes for them. The one son, McGilvery's son, was working at a Tablas and was learning about propagating nursery material and whatnot. And they thought that diversifying the ranch and growing some grapes would be a good idea. And then, lo and behold, going to Halter and actually working with that block and making a wine program out of it after all those years was, you know, coming full circle. That's pretty cool. And do you do you still do you enjoy tasting where these brands have like? Do you do you still kind of feel a connection to all these brands? Like, if you see a halter, will you be like, oh, yeah, I feel like a connection to it. You know, yeah, bring that over here or to all these brands. Or is there, is there just so many where you're just like, yeah, you know, you're just not as phased by it? Um, well, there certainly has been a lot of prolific growth of brands in Paso over the last 30 years. And I think that I've started, myself being the old man here, I've started to lose track of all the new people coming into town. I was one of those people at one point in time. right. Um, and, um, but I think that for the longest time, starting with Cindy's brand in 06, when I, when I started consulting, I had a lot of startup projects, which were, you know, Justin was sort of a startup project, Adelaide not as much, Halter was absolutely a startup program from ground zero. And working with startup projects is, you know, it's like birthing a child. It's pretty exciting. Everything's new. There's a lot of ideas going around. About I think it's got to feel good that somebody likes your winemaking style and respects the acumen enough to entrust this new dream of theirs, you know? And many times, you know, you hear this place, that place, you know? And I think we'll, it's we'll a talk lot to of getting right. to understand That's pretty cool. your client and, and what they're... A lot of people, they want to make wine, but sometimes have a hard time articulating what they want. Yeah. And so the key is getting them to articulate that and then trying to meet those needs, whatever they might be. Yeah. I don't know if it was Juan Mercado. Somebody was talking about Anthony Yunt, and they made a good point. He's the winemaker for dinner, but mm-hmm. he consults a lot of great brands for someone who's listening, and we... We've had him on the show, but he, um, someone mentioned of him, like, yeah, he's a great winemaker, and he, you can ask him, like, what should, he's like, I can tell you what I would do, but, you, you know, I want to know, like, what you, I want to look through the lens of what you want to accomplish, and you kind of have to put Correct. on a different hat, in yes. a way, sometimes, don't you? Yes, and that, a lot of that is just being open and receptive to um, that idea, and then at that point in time, trying to flesh it out into something that can actually approach a, a, a real product. Okay, from Halter Ranch, where do we go next? So that's when I started consulting okay. after I left Halter. So, and then um, when does Paso Port start? So Paso Port starts a year after I left Halter. Okay. And why did you start Port? Why did I start Port? Yeah. <laughs> million dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well... The industry in Paso Robles is more or less built around table wine. Everyone was doing maybe a port wine as part of their portfolio, doing a dessert wine. But there really weren't any brands that were focusing on it as the primary product. It was always kind of a secondary product. And I think that too often port is made from grapes that are too ripe to make table wine from. We can utilize them as a poor program. And my philosophy was always that if they're too ripe for table wine, they're probably a little too ripe for port as well, because port is made from fully mature grapes, not overly mature grapes. And so I thought it would be interesting to try to um, have a brand not competing with everyone. I wouldn't be competing with my clients, which was a primary goal because they were all table wine programs. Great point. Doing something different that could be a niche market. So then in 06, Cindy, you meet Steve 
Is that right? Or you've known him before that or what? I did not know Steve before 2006. So I had asked around. My family had kind of decided to start a wine brand. And and your family's been growing forever. Yes. And it kind of reminds me of like the Miller family in Biennacito. Like here they are. They're growing for a long, long time. They become known for their grapes. At some point, they go, hey, like, we're doing this. Let's get, a, let's get a winemaker. Let's get a brand together. Absolutely. So I asked around. And so I was sitting in the parking lot of the old Vaughn store and said to, I called Steve and I said, hey, I hear you make wine. Would you consider working for our family? And his comment to me was, do you think you should interview me? <laughs> oh, good idea. <laughs> so Lola was actually at the dining room table right. when that's when i first met lola is that right yeah, really during that interview yes no and way so so basically were you even paying a, did you even care about the interview anymore were you just like totally struck <laughs> oh boy well that's a whole story in and of itself i know but we gotta anyway, bring lola over here no. um and so we're sitting at the table talking about steinbeck vineyards the history steve is listening intently yeah about what our dream is and he said look cindy i have made really nice wine for people that didn't have a plan to sell it. He said, I don't want to do that anymore. If you want me to make your wine, I need you to understand that this is important, that your family, and I, I'm pondering, okay, seven-generation story, passion, love the land, love people, we can do this. And I said to Steve, I'm not asking you to make Pastor Robles best wine. I'm asking you to make the best possible wine off of Steinbeck Vineyards. And he paused as he does, and he said, I can do that for you. That's really cool. And that was 16 years ago. And what was it that made you guys, a family, you or whoever, made this move and pulled this trigger, want to start a brand? So when I came into the industry back home after a different career in 1997, I watched my dad farming and not marketing. And that's a dangerous position to be in. And so I, with more of a marketing brain, said, let's start a wine brand. And he said no twice. Now, why would he say but no? If you're going to head it up, what, what? Dad and mom are partners at Everly Winery and have been partners right. with Gary since 1979. Yeah, Gary and talks fondly said, about your family, of course. Dad said, I already am a partner at a winery. Yeah. I don't want another winery. And I said, including Lola at the table at that time, could we at least put Steinbeck on the label and dad gave permission to do that and so a lot of it's story- weird that you even had to fight for that did was it kind of a tug of war a little bit to even put i mean well when are you d- close with your dad very yeah and so but he, he just was, didn't want he just didn't he just didn't believe yeah. that our family needed its own wine brand okay, sure sure being partners with eberly yeah okay so as i said before he said no twice wow. and daughters you know usually uh their dad eventually says yes. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> and so he said yes. Where do you fall in the hierarchy of the kids? Uh, I have an older brother. I'm number two. And uh-huh. I have two siblings. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So anyway, then uh, Steve came on board. and we Why were, Steve? Be, you get, you just, because I interviewed him. No, but did somebody and, like, how did you think of him? Did you know him? Did you? No, did somebody, I asked around and okay, just so people, tried to get yeah. referrals. Oh, that's cool. Whatnot. And it was, timing was just beautiful because he was just getting into the consulting side and so yeah. forth. Perfect timing for you, wasn't it? 
It was, 2005, 2006 was a booming time for not only Paso Robles, but the industry as a whole. Yeah. There was, the stock market was doing incredibly well. People had a lot of discretionary income to be spending and doing a wine all brand. The, all was the cool subprime mortgages were going out. And, <laughs> yep. And, yeah, we had was, a few years until things came crashing down a bit. Right, so it was, right. a, it was a big time. Yeah. And it was a big time for, for Paso Wine. Yeah. And, then, and then even you talk about the wine. I mean, the wine was kind of going through one of its big growth spurts then you look at 07 and how many people made great wines in 07 and mm-hmm. so yeah it was a really exciting time for Paso right then it was there was a lot of there were, not just for the wine industry but just tourism as a whole and transformation of downtown and the new restaurants the mm-hmm. new um, shopping businesses and I mean every month it seems like something new was opening up yeah. and happening back yeah then. i remember i moved here in 03 and i remember like vinoteca mm-hmm. i worked there for a little bit worked there part-time and um or via creek was mm-hmm. was the hot place then you mm-hmm. know yep in 03 and then downtown crumbled down in, de- in december <laughs> yeah with the earthquake what happened to you in the earthquake uh where were you ver- yeah uh we fared i was in a uh, a modular working at the time and when it happened uh the first thing i did was run outside and watch some cars bouncing up and down on the concrete and um we uh we had some minor losses but uh, halter ranch at that time was small and so we didn't have massive barrel stacks and set up in a warehouse. So mm-hmm. our damage was pretty minimal. We had to write off some You were kind of on that good. line, though, a little yes, bit. Yes, like, we were. So you know, here's Templeton the, got really ripped, too. Here's hard. the interesting part is it really damaged a lot of um, hilltop sites more so than bottomland, which is almost sometimes opposite to what a lot of earthquakes do. Sure. And the Victorian was being remodeled at the time, and Mitch and Leslie Weiss had their the house um, that they had on top of the hill that they lived in, and their closets, all the clothes were completely shaken off the hangers and lying in heaps, and yeah. cupboards were open, and all the canned goods were on the floor, and you went down to the Victorian, and in the bathroom of the Victorian, the tiles that they were using to remodel were still stacked in neat little rows. Isn't that something? Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah. And we're talking about the Victorian that you know people remember from the movie Arachnophobia, right. and I mean, it's an like old, late 1800s. Yeah. You know, gem porch all the way around on two levels. Right. I mean, it's really something. That's so interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, one of the best earthquake, and I hate to say best, but one of the most like harrowing earthquake stories. Um, Ken Volk and what went down at Wild Horse. I mean, some of that stuff. He's like, I'm thinking of coming out with pictures and doing stuff for the 20th anniversary, right? Because a lot of the stuff he wasn't even allowed to say because he had just been acquired. Mm-hmm. But it was so nuts there. I mean, yeah, people, you know, it really was location based. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Cindy? I mean, what, the earthquake on the east side over you're on the east side, right? Right. And because of the way that it was positioned out in the West Hills, we really, I mean, we felt it, sure, of course, but, but it didn't do any damage, yeah. nothing. So interesting. So you guys meet in 06, and then, Steve, what are they saying? Hey, we're, we're looking for, I mean, obviously they got the fruit that they got, so you're like, hey, it looks like I'm making cab, this and that and the other. Were you like, hey, maybe we should make this? Are you telling Steve, hey, I want to just do X, Y, Z? How are you guys kind of collaborating on what we're actually going to do? Cindy was uh, more the visionary as far as the wine program was concerned and where she wanted to focus attention. I think that my role was more to maybe select uh, particular 
blocks to focus on as far as harvesting. And there were, if there was fruit that I didn't think was meeting the quality criteria they were looking for, to maybe pivot and shift from from those varieties as far as from a winemaking program. But like we're drinking the crash here, an older vintage of the crash. And it was always Cindy's idea to have a wine where every variety that was utilized in the wine program went into a singular blend. And that, and that is the crash and the story behind the crash. So does he get to pick? I mean, are you like, hey, Steve, you got 450 acres. Pick the best. Let's make some wine. We knew we wanted Cabernet and Viognier and Zinfandel. We thought we wanted Syrah, and that was the one that Steve said, you know, this I can make wine out of this Syrah, and it will be good, but you're Petite Syrah. And so instead of Syrah, we chose Petite Syrah, and that to this day is Isn't Petite Syrah funny in Paso? I mean, it's so amazing. Yeah. I don't know, does it grow anywhere better? I mean, it's really phenomenal. It adapts to this climate very well. And for a wine that sometimes is hard to kind of appreciate, sometimes we've likened it to almost like swallowing dice. It's very angular. You can make a, a petite Syrah and you do it right and it's so smooth. It's hard to find a better wine. It's so beautiful. I, I call it the Glossner Silk. Yeah. See, there you go. The Glossner Silk. That's what Lola calls it, too. <laughs> so what's the secret petite Syrah? Is it in the vineyard? Is it in the cellar? How do you round out those tannins and make it just like, mm? A lot of it, a lot of it comes from the vineyard because in the early days I was making petite Syrah from the Stanislaus's uh, vineyard, which is just over the hill from where we're sitting right now, and it's a very different style petite Syrah coming out of the vineyard than with Cindy's. Cindy's petite Syrah has a natural suppleness to it that is just inherent within within the fruit. Some petite Syrahs you are trying to tame tannins and acids and. While her fruit has plentiful amounts of those, the way it's built into the grapes, it offers a roundness as well. When you start picking rows in places that you want to get some of this wine that she wants you to make, are you having to tell people who have been buying that fruit for a while, like, hey, by the way, did people buy like in rows or did this buy by the tonnage or how did they do that back in the day? What were they doing? I'll let Cindy answer that. The folks we sell grapes to, we make a thousand cases, maybe 1,500 yeah. in any given year, and we're like a gnat. Yeah. On their sleeve. And so when we said we want to make a little bit of wine from our fruit, when you've got a 10-acre block that's three tons, three and a half tons an acre, what we want, five tons, is to them. And so it's a handshake. Yeah. That's so interesting. 16 years we've been doing the wine. What kind of, and you make a Viognier, you make a Cab. Zinfandel. Zin. We did a straight Merlot uh, recently. Cool. Petite Syrah. This blend, and then we're it's doing great. a rosé, uh, Grenache Syrah rosé. You think Merlot will come back? I was just having a really good Merlot over the weekend uh, for my birthday, and we were just like, a good Merlot, a Every, beautiful wine. Everything in the wine industry goes in a circle, so yeah. eventually, yes, it will yeah. come back. <laughs> um, what do you do to the Merlot to make it? I mean, obviously, the, the farming has got to be on point. You've got to have some great grapes, but is, is Merlot one that you can kind of just like kind of get out of the way, or is it real finicky in the cellar, or what? No, it's more finicky. The, the Cab is much more um, straightforward wine to make than, than the Merlot. And I think that with the Merlot, it's more playing into the fact that you want to try to gain some depth and um, complexity from it, but you don't want to overwork it at the same time. So you're doing the port, and then what comes first, spirits or wine? 
Because you were on spirits oh, wine. pretty... Wine comes first. Okay. So, well, then you're like, okay, I'm just going to break. I'm going to make some wine. Well, we always... When we started Paso Port, we always made a little bit of table wine because we knew not every single person walking through the door is going to want a glass of port. But that was the emphasis was port. And so we made a white and a red. And Percaso, as a table wine brand, was a client for a number of years. And then they left town and moved moved away. And when they moved away, we took the brand over. How many clients can you have a harvest before it starts getting like, this is ridiculous? Uh, well, a lot of it depends on size. I mean, I think at one point in time, I might have had seven or eight clients. Are they asking different things of you? Like maybe some are just picking your brain. Some like want you crushing. And I mean, is that a spectrum or is it just like you do one thing for a client? I was, yes. So it's been simple enough that we take it from the grape to the bottle. I've never been a um, consultant that just comes in every once in a while, checks on the wine, checks on the blends, makes the blends. It's always been, we'll work in the vineyard, we'll take the fruit, we'll ferment it, we'll age it, and then we'll bottle it. And from after it gets bottled, then it's the client's responsibility to, to get out there in the market and sell it. So the relationship has been the same for every client I've ever worked for as far as that goes, so that everything can dovetail together. Yeah. But I think that the part in choosing people to work with is not only, you know, the individual's personality and knowing that you can that you can mesh and communicate well together, but it's trying to find a degree of differentiation so there isn't overlap in what you're doing. Oh, that's interesting. Do you have people who you don't mesh with over the years? Oh, of course. And then do you just say, okay, next vintage, we're done? Or do you say, hey, the money's good. I like the relationship. I like being a part of this brand. I think the brand itself has promise, even though they're kind of, you know, a jackass, but I'm going to try and make it work. How do you even... If you do your job, you know that on the front end. Yeah, and you're okay. not finding out about it on the back end. Yeah, but... So, so there's a number But of sometimes people. you probably found out it on the back end. S- sometimes you do, and that's unfortunate when that yeah. happens but if you if you can interview one another well you you get a pretty good feel as far as where they're coming from and what they're looking for and because it's such an interesting relationship because it's like you're they're your customer but then also like you came to me for for something so it's like it is a very different relationship make sure to being an employee yeah and i think that over the years in the different places where i worked i was always looking for the perfect job and and i say this with all honesty that I wasn't a very good employee in that regard. I I wanted things done a certain way, and if they couldn't get done that way, then often that led to some clashes. Who feels that? Is it like the owner? You're having clashes with the owner, or like clashes with people in the cellar? Like, no, you like Gordon Ramsay mainly, in the cellar? It's mainly ownership, because ownership is carrying out the philosophy of the brand, so it's just... Make it. And when you're consulting... There's, it's very much of a give and take relationship, like a marriage. Yeah, and so it's a dance. It's much, it's it's much more. I, I find it much more uh, satisfying, gratifying, to be in that kind of relationship, business wise. Yeah, what's easier? Is it easier doing it for yourself, or is it easier not having all the worries that come with your own brand and the responsibilities that come with all that, and then just say, hey, I'll make the wine and and be the winemaker, but you worry about this, that, the other. Yeah, I probably won't be too politically correct with I don't want you to be. I want you to be real. So when... 
the mortgage is being paid by the consulting business. That's the priority. Yeah. And so your brand takes a back seat. And for years, that's kind of the way it was. The is brand, that hard? Brand took is that it, hard it on the heart? It, it, it is. Yeah. It is. Um, because you know the brand's struggling a little bit because it's just a lack of time and attention more than it, well, anything yeah. else. But when you can get to where there's more equity as far as what the brand is bringing in monetarily and what the consulting bringing in monetarily, then there's a little bit better balance as far as as far as that's concerned. And, you know, frankly, at some point in time, I started cutting back on the consulting to be able to pay more attention to growing the brands. Because feeling that satisfaction and the pride within your brand became more important than, yes, this is maybe putting more checks in the mailbox, but I want to I want to see what happens when I put all that heart and soul and my mind you, I mean, into you my own brand. Ideas yeah, and sure. you want to try to execute those ideas. And if it's just a lack of time and energy to be able to execute them, then you have to start making some choices. Mm. So when you when you having these conversations either with Lola or yourself is this like you know mid two thousands or like when when are you kind of figuring this out or is it kind of just like a malleable thing you're always kind of trying to figure out the whole time you're doing it it's a little bit of that yeah um, I, I think that the idea for the brand um, started uh, in two thousand four two thousand five um, and. Uh, the idea came along with it to do the pinup art um, because port was most popular just post-prohibition as far as um, being more dominant in the marketplace than table wine. And, um, and that art is very cemented in that era. It's really cool. I like that. And so we've talked about that before. I really like how. Yeah, and so yeah. that was something where the brand could be built around this. Um, and I always say, you know, someone says they had a nice glass of wine, and nine times out of ten, when you ask them what it was, they don't remember the name, but they'll remember something about it. And so the girls become this memory tool for people to yeah. to, to keep the brand with them. Yeah, it works. Yeah. I tell you, it works. Cindy, for a family that's got so much history in Paso, it's got to be pretty exciting to see the, you know, we were talking earlier about like 2003 and how things were like kind of going through like a growth spurt then. Sure. Well, the way you see Paso now, I mean, it's wild, right? I mean, it's something. It's fantastic. And, and I've always said our family always welcomed growth and change. And so we're longtime locals with a vision for the future. And what the wine industry has done in general for the region is incredible. The restaurants, the hotels, the all the different amenities. And then, you know, when you think about the fact that we're a gathering place um, halfway between two major metropolitan areas. Yeah. So it's great, and our family, I, I believe, has always embraced that. Even from 1884, when there was, I don't know, two wineries or three wineries at that time, to today. Think there's any of that wine in a bottle still somewhere, Steve? I'm sure. Who? Who's got it? Not I, me. I'm ready. Yeah, I mean, it's probably buried in a ditch somewhere in the back. I know, 40. <laughs> dude, Cindy, you're so right. That's probably true. I don't know. What's the oldest wine you tasted at a Paso? In the 70s, HMR. Yeah, yeah, I did a 75 like Chardonnay. From HMR. Yeah, we've tasted some of Gary's 70s. Yeah, 77. And then he, yeah, 77. And, and John uh, tasted a number of old ones that John yeah. had made under the Adelaide label that are like um, late 70s to early 80s. Isn't it cool to see the ageability of Paso? Yeah. 
Like, you know, and sometimes they'll have a wine that's kind of old and you're like, oh, okay, but that can happen anywhere. But you taste some wines and like some of these wines, you're like, wow, that's... Yes. I I think that the winemaking style was a little bit different back then. Yeah. I think that th- there's been an internationalization of wine style and more immediacy. This is where I kind of feel like I'm a little bit of a dinosaur in that regard is because the way I learned about wine and came to love wine was really through European wines back on the East Coast. And Where are you from? Pennsylvania. Okay. And I went to school in upstate New York. Okay. All right. So, um, so in my mind, an expensive wine, part of the reason why it is costly is because of the ageability, the fact mm. that it isn't made to drink immediately. In fact, it's quite reticent and quite backward, possibly, when it's young. And it's made to be cellared, but people don't sell their wine anymore. So the whole industry has adapted to that in trying to make wines that are much more accessible on release than what they used to 30 years ago. And you kind of got to play the game, but yes. it's still fun to... I, I think that a winemaker's job, to some extent, is to try to do what you can to have the wine have an accessibility but still staying true to the fact that that wine... I mean, it's a cliche. Oh, this wine tastes great now, but it'll age for 10 years. Sure, well, right. Really, in the truth of the matter is is that you're either building a wine for one or the other. And the hard part is finding the balance where you can have some immediacy, but also really stay true to the fact that the wine's going to age. In the See, that's and, really interesting. You know, like, so like if you have a wine and it's being made for complete ageability, it might not taste that great in the beginning. No. And that, I phrased the Glossner turn, because our current release on the cab is a 16, and that is sweet spot, because that cab has taken that turn where I believe it's much more integrated. That's your current and release, I'm, 16? A 16. A lot of people can't afford to do that, though, huh? I know. That's it's, tough. I mean, There's I know an economic you, commitment to that. that. That's what's really cool. I mean, talked to brands like Kukula, some other ones were like, hey, we're going to keep this an extra year and a half. But I mean, 16, that's really, that's really something special for your customers to be like, hey, we've aged this for you. We've done... And that when we open the bottle, it is... Piss off. It will still age for 10 more years very well, but it's to me, taken that turn and is good to go. But you're the marketing gal. You never want to be like, hey, where are my 19s? I got well, to sell, right? He's like, Cindy, sell the wine. We don't need to save this stuff. And I'm like, Dad, it's made to age. <laughs> That's so interesting. So what's Dad feel about the winery now? Oh, he is all in. How old's your dad? 83. And is he doing good? Doing very well. Mom is as well. Oh, that's awesome. And so they must love to see, like, finally, I mean, the name that they've been farming forever, their name on a bottle of wine that you're like, hey, I want to do this. They are very thankful that number three, they said yes. And that Cindy wouldn't give up. That's right. That's pretty cool. Was that a, was that a theme growing up with them and you? Always. Yeah. <laughs> Cindy was tenacious. Yeah. Then what, what was another now. one? What was another one in your past with them that that worked? Was it a car? Was it a certain thing? Can you think of something back growing up with them that? Oh yeah, that that mo works with them. Oh, not that I want to say out loud. Yeah. Right. No, I can't think of anything. Right. There. That's pretty cool that he, you know he's like, hey. I believed in it. I believed yeah. in my dad's grape growing at that time. We were selling grapes to Fetzer and Meridian, and that yeah. was paying the bills, but it was a $6 bottle of cab. And I was like, no, Eberly is doing a great job with Steinbeck Cab. On a small scale, we can do that well or even that next step better. Yeah. And I believed in it, and I kept saying we could do this. That's pretty cool. How many consulting clients you got still, Steve, right now? As Three. Of now? Who are they? 
Besides Besides Cindy, mm-hmm. I make Guyamar's wine for the Stanislaus. Oh, cool. Marini and Ishka. Yeah. Um, I talked to them and, uh, when I had John Munn. So I had yes, John and Ishka. That's right. Oh, you did nice. John and Ishka. And yes. I remember that. Yeah. And um, so Marini delivered both my boys. So we knew oh, cool. Marini and Ishka long before we ever really started a winemaking relationship with them. And there is a ranch that's across the street from HMR that is used to be owned by the Bailey family. When Creston went bankrupt, a gentleman from Taiwan bought it, and there happened to be uh, friends of his that lived locally, the Ashkins, and they took over the management of it, and I became involved in making wine for that ranch back in the early 2000s. And so I've been involved in that ranch for uh, quite a number of years with their with their family. So really, they're kind of three very different wine programs, but they're all vineyard-driven, which to me now you have the ability to make some very individualistic wines because they're all they all center around unique vineyards. Yeah, and that's where your heart's at. That's yeah. where like that's a fun expression for right. you. That's really cool. Yeah. So. How do you find time for the spirits? Where do the spirits even fit in? Because there's a lot of creativity. I mean, we talk about like, you know, in the tasting with wine, it's like, oh, how do you put the strawberries in here? It's like, well, you some can't of these put spirits. The strawberries in there with right. the spirits. But the spirits, you literally are. I mean, you're yeah. doing so many interesting yeah. things. And I want to talk about Pendres and, I mean, a lot of different bottles, a lot of different kind of styles and different liqueurs and stuff. The idea for it goes all the way back to 2009 when we had the very first tasting room. And the idea was always that for the port brands, we'd make our own brandy. We got the still in 2013, so it took four years of desiring that to happen for it to actually financially happen. And really, the, the, the game changer was the fact that we could get a bank loan on a still. One of the, our, our local uh, farm credit said that they would loan us the money to buy the still because it's a $100,000 investment and it wasn't something that we could just come out of pocket with. So once they gave us the green light, we were we were in and started making uh, fortification material for the, for the ports. And at the same time, our license allowed us to make brandy-based products. And so... Now, have you played with this before, like off no. the record kind of thing? Or you, you no. didn't even know? You're like, well... I mean, playing around like <laughs> right. everyone does, yeah. but um, not not very seriously. And what transpired was all of our fortification material prior to that date had been bought from St. George Spirits. And I got to know the people there very well. And so we actually hired the distiller from St. George Spirits to come down and work with me over a period of time to teach me what what he knew about the distilling process, which is why we got a Holstein, which is their main still that they had there. And so he was working with a still that was very familiar to him. And so guiding me through the process was a lot easier because um, this, he knew the still hands down. What's easier? What's easier? I still think I'm a novice at distilling. I mean, I do better now than I did when I first started, but I think that I'm still learning the nuance of it. No, not so much what's easier, but what's more fun? What's more, like, lights you up? To be honest, the distilling. Only Does because it? I've been doing the other stuff for 30 years. Yeah. So. There's a lot of differences in the production, though. I mean, one, you get one crack at it a year. Yes. And the other, you can kind of, there's a, it's a little bit more forgiving. Yes. 
It absolutely is. And the, the turnaround to the final product is quicker. I've always been envious of guys in the beer industry because they can do such a rapid turnaround on it and have a product out that they, you know, they don't have to wait two to three years for it. And so it's a, it's a long waiting process. And then you look at Port, and we have a Tawny here that's over 10 years old. Can't wait. I mean, the waiting process is just, you yeah. know, that's what you're doing 90% of the it's, time. Well, it's got to be. It's got to be. Like I was, we were talking with Cindy about New Vintage being a 26 it's got to be expensive. It is. You're sitting on a lot of money. You're not. It is getting and paid for. The, the, you're. You're. Yeah. So there's the length of time that you have to sit on it, and then it's the fact that you're not putting bottled goods in, and you're keeping it in a bulk status for such a long period of time to turn it into something else. Can you do a Solera thing? Is that what you do? So at least when you it's, hit ten, you can kind of move through it. It's a modified Solera system. So for someone who's listening, a Solera so system, it's basically, explain that for it's, someone. It's Solera system, basically, you're layering um, the vintages. You're layering it through so that as you're adding new, you're taking old, and everything is mixed to give you a uniformity along the way. And everything in my program is kept separate until the program has been designated. And then at that point in time, some blending starts. So I have some master blends for Tawny and some master blends for our aged white port Angelica. But when they're young, all the components are still separate. What's more fun, the port or the wine? The port. It's more challenging. Uh, the wine is always more challenging because it's a, it's a more delicate commodity. I mean, port process... It's like giving birth. The, pro- the process of port is all work all up front. Um, all the women in the room are like, it's yeah. not like that. <laughs> <laughs> and so once you've gotten that work done through the, through the fermentation process and getting it dialed in, the product is pretty bulletproof after that. Wine is like a finicky kid that's demanding something all the time. And so you have to be paying attention all the time to it because it's just so much easier for it to spoil. What are your soils out there at Steinbeck? Clay and uh, sandy loam. Yeah. In the lower creek bed areas, it's sandy loam. And then on the hilltops, it's clay. And Geneseo District. Yes. And how many people can say they're from the district that was named after where their family came from? We're very fortunate, <laughs> That's yeah. pretty crazy, That's Cindy. Pretty cool. That's old school. And you're talking about getting into your eighth generation soon. I mean, right? Well, my oldest grandson's 10 years old. I think let's give him a few years. Yeah, yeah. But seven, seven generations <laughs> yeah, sure. is pretty, pretty cool. Oh, he doesn't have a choice. He's <laughs> destined, right? Um, actually, Bradley is, a, a, he knows the name of every dinosaur and is much more an engineer mind. Yeah. And, and both my kids are really good at saying, if our kids love this, they're welcome. But if they love something else, that's what we want them to do. If they do. love something else, we'll change their mind and bring them back. <laughs> what, what about your boys, Steve? They don't want any part of this. How old are they? <laughs> um, 20 and 22. Oh, did that hurt a little bit? No, it's, 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 I'm, I'm glad that they're, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Age is a great, it's, a, it's a great age. And, um, you think they'll change their mind? I don't know, but the the one is Lola's into, hoping that do Lola Lola's over there like eh maybe who knows is it kind of like come crash with me I'm gonna be doing do you kind of like try and bring him in or is it like we're that. over that I I have done that in the past but I think that truth be told I think they see that this is a seven day a week job and I'm not so sure that they're that keen on that <laughs> do they um you said one of them's over twenty one just just over twenty one does he enjoy the wine the spirits anything no. He does not drink. Really? Yeah. Is that a, is that a blessing or a curse? 
I don't think I guess, of it one way or the other, to yeah. be honest with you. I mean, we let him try stuff well, saves the inventory a little about bit. it, but yeah. it's, not, it's not to his taste palate at this point in time. They're still, they're still you know, soda kids. You check if they were adopted, or you check if they were like, are, they, are you mine? Are you mine? I'm going to go to 23 and Me and see if you are mine. Our youngest likes champagne. I have to admit that. Oh, is that, that's yeah. cool. You ever want to make a sparkling or like play with some things like Pet Matt? We did or this? make a sparkling wine, and um, and it's funny. When Brian started the sparkling wine program for Steinbeck, I said, look, I, I've been there, done that. This is, this, is, this is your project. Yeah. Because sparkling wine, it's like, if you do it the traditional Traditional method. Every bottle is its own fermentation, and if unless you have even as ridiculous as the wine equipment costs, sparkling wine equipment costs twice as much as that. And when you're working it by hand, it's just a lot of labor. And Lola and I knew. I mean, I I started the sparkling wine program because I loved champagne. And I found out that, you know, for the cost of getting involved in a sparkling wine program, I could have taken a bath in Dom Perignon. You know? Right, you're, right. You're like, you're so heavily invested in such a We were like, unless we're going to charge like 130 for this bottle, exactly. like, it's not going to work. You're never going to yeah. make a profit on it. But you see some people doing that. I like, I got to look at like Nicole from Stolo or, you know, formerly Stolo, what her and um, Lucas are doing with Haleotide. I it's mean, a those love are, affair. It's a love affair. That's what it is. And it's, it's diving in deep and it's, yeah. it's, it's a great way to put it. It's a love yeah. affair. Yeah. But you've had a love affair with a lot of different different mediums yeah because i'm always curious about things i think you ever try pet nap no haven't do you want to no what, what about it is dis- dissuades you i don't know i just uh, don't care yeah it's i mean whatever too hipster too hipster yeah i'm what not is, a hipster guy what was those years a long time ago maybe you feel like the way that you evolve is like through the spirits or through well the interesting the part is blending. because we started the spirits in 2013 we're coming up on 10 years and so we've held some brandy and some grappa that i'm looking forward to bottling and releasing that are 10 years old how do you so, make grappa grappa's tough grappa is very it's tough to hard. drink for me, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but it's, it's easy to make it poorly. Is the problem? Sure. Oh, there and you it's go. Very difficult to make it well. You know, with a standard distillation, you have the three parts called the heads, the hearts, and the tails. And the hearts is where the ethanol is, and that's the part that you keep. And you need to make the cuts to eliminate the heads and eliminate the tails. And with grappa, the window, the heart. The window to gather the heart is such a shortened window compared to distilling wine that unless you're really on it, it's very easy for tails to get into the product and make it harsher because of that. And so I think a lot of people – grappa for most people is very visceral. They either love it or they hate it, and it's all. And do they love it because of like? I remember listening to Janelle talk about grappa, and it's almost like you know you could see her hearkening back family and times, and and like there's memories there. Like it's a deep thing. And me, I just go, oh my god, it tastes like '89 octane. Like, you know what I mean? Like everyone who loves grappa has had that special bottle at some point. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's what it is. Yeah. And then what about other stuff? Are you, you're doing liqueurs. Are you doing like nochinos? And yes. So because I'm looking behind you, and you have like a portfolio. It was like you right. Got a, so the nochino. Is something that we got introduced to when we were visiting Italy, and um, one commodity that hasn't completely been replaced by wine grapes in the area is walnuts. Yeah, great and point. so we were able to source local walnuts and make a nocino, and that was a lot of fun. That's a kind of a that's a little that, that ages for a period of time, so there's a little bit of there's about a year involved in yeah. the aging process on it. So, where do you get the inspiration for the stuff that you do do? Like, I'm about to taste your chamomile. Right. So, you got to try the chamomile, and that was another inspiration from Italy. 
We tried the chamomile liqueurs over in Italy. At the, we, went, we went to Italy to visit the grapperias, and it just so happens that a lot of the grapperias also had chamomile liqueur. That's what they're and, called, grapperias, yeah. huh? And so we fell in love with the chamomile liqueur, and I always said, God, at some point in time, I really want to do a chamomile liqueur. They're cool. It's, it's a plant. It's a plant, grappa. not a fruit. That's kind of cool. What's that? Yeah. So it's is it a, easier to work with a plant than a fruit? It's more. It's more durable. Mm. You know, the fruit is a little is, more forgiving. Yeah, a little bit more forgiving. The fruit is very delicate, and, and the timing. You have a certain window to work with it, and if you're not working with it within a certain time frame, it's going to spoil. How are you when you mess up? Are, do you get angry at yourself? Do you just bounce back? Do you <laughs> do you kick yourself in the in the ass over it, or do you <laughs> you brush that, it off? Depends how bad the mistake is, really, um, yeah. <laughs> or how expensive the mistake is. <laughs> how expensive the mistake is? Yes, because it's money right out of your pocket. No, I mean I know that working with the distilled spirits product i'm gonna make mistakes from time to time with it the thing is is that spirit tends to be a little bit more forgiving and sometimes you can adapt those mistakes and work on it down the line can you like put an eraser on it and like literally control and new like can you put that can you just redistill it and start over yes you can that's cool yeah can't do that with wine can't do that with wine that's cool yeah so, Nochino, the chamomile. We've got orange, uh, spiced apple, walnut, blueberry, chamomile. Wow. And then the other uh, spirit that we started making that's really my favorite is uh, an Amaro. Oh, cool. And Amaros that's... have kind of cut back on in, in uh, the whole um, craft cocktail community. Craft cocktail oh, my God, scene. yeah. Especially and, local. Like, I mean, are you selling yeah. it to local bars? Yeah. I was going to say, like, I could play like sidecar and this and that. They would yeah. love stuff like that. And so, and so, I mean, all the spirits are kind of based on a recipe, whereas wine, you don't really have that formal recipe that you're working with. But the thing that's interesting about the Amaros, the base on it is blood orange, which I think is interesting in and of itself. And then the we've got about 20 different roots, spices, and herbs that are added to it as flavoring agents, bittering and flavoring agents. Did you find yourself a natural talent? in these profiles like you had with wine or did you have to learn this a little more? There is some crossover that you can use if you've been making wine to to the spirits. It's just um, adapting a lot of that sensory work a little bit differently along mm. along the way. And so um, I think that it's still a lot of sensory work, which you're proficient in at that point in time. But how you smell a spirit versus how you smell a wine is a little bit different and what you look... Because the dominant thing in spirits is alcohol. So really, sensing spirits is about peeling back the alcohol like an onion and getting to what's, you know, not necessarily underneath, but what's... Like Don Henley would say, the heart of the matter. Yes. What's really... Mm, what's you there? Know, what's right? Right. So, oh, so wow. it's a little bit different... Um, tasting technique that's interesting and what about like sometimes you're tasting for what you're going to expect later on like in the winemaking process the cellar process you're like where's this gonna go so if you're making neutral brandy you want something that's really clean if i'm if the the liqueurs are made from a neutral brandy so it's 90 plus percent alcohol and so you're looking for cleanliness at that point in time because it's the fruit that you want shining through um whereas when you're going to age brandy in barrels and make a straight brandy with it the spirit is not as clean. It's a little dirtier because some of those cogeners turn into desirable things with the aging process in the barrel. Just like whiskey as a base product is not a real clean spirit. But the people who are making the whiskey know that those cogeners are what is going to give the whiskey its typical quality during that time in barrel. You want to make whiskey next? Is that what you're telling me? Uh, you do. Don't, I, you already started, haven't you? No, we haven't. 
No. What's going on? Why are you looking at Lola? Because that's a long process. Okay. Well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so, that, there's something here. I tapped into something process. there. So what do you want people to do with Pendres? Pour it in a little glass, drink it, sip it, yep. mix it in a cocktail. Just just get it. Anyway, what? anyway, yeah. anyway, they enjoy it. We have people. We sell it IV to bars bag, and they whatever. make restaurants with it. I drink it neat. Everything that we make, I drink it neat. Yeah. Um, well, chill out. This is. Oh my God. I I just been smelling it for the last three four minutes. Just took a taste. That's incredible. Yeah. It's fun. Wow. Yeah. What's the ABV on that? Uh, around 30%. That's good. Yeah. It's smooth. I know. that. This is a thing that, I mean, people say that about wine. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, when I see people's eyes light up with the spirits, it uh-huh. brings me more satisfaction. Yeah, spirits can get hot. Do you like spirits, Cindy? I do. Do you? You drink some things neat here and there? Yes. Yeah. When it gets too hot, it's like it's too much. This is good. Yeah, really good. Yeah. Is this one of your favorites, the cameo? What's your yeah, favorite? It is. The Mara is my favorite. Okay, but cool. The cameo we'll is my second favorite. Wow. Shoot, we got to put some cocktails together. Yeah. When we stop. Goodness gracious. Okay, so um, do we direct everyone to PasoPort.com? Yeah, because you can get to Percaso and Pendres through Passaport.com. I feel like I need Passaport's Lola. I need a little company. Lola. I haven't had Lola, come over here. Put your Passaport wine. See, that's why we need Lola. I knew it. I've had you guys in the studio a bunch. I love when I get a chance to talk to you guys. I feel like I've talked to Lola a bunch too, but it's been a while. It's been a while. And I can't come here and not say hi to you. How are you? I'm good. How are you? How did Steve do? I think he did pretty good. You did pretty good? I think he did. He, he, he did a really good job. <laughs> what, what was some of the conversation? Because you were listening with Corinne over there. When we talk about some of the history and the trial and error, and the, what were, and you're listening to Steve kind of like sound off about it, what are you thinking and, you know, being that you've been along the ride for this journey as well? Well, I think he's, uh, he holds back quite a bit as far as some of the things he says, and I understand why. <laughs> because I'm married to him. Right. Um, I mean, I, I think... He's obviously very passionate about what he does. And it comes out, I think, in everything that he makes. You know, you can see it in his products. You can see it in the, in the spirits, in the wine, in his clients' wines, his customers' wines, the ports. He's very dedicated to putting something out there that he stands by and that he would want to drink himself. He's very humble. He's been around a long time in the community, and he's a pretty humble guy. Yeah. That, you know? with time, brings humility. <laughs> <laughs> What um what are you more excited about? I mean, are there p- aspects being in the business end and like you know listening to what Steve is going through with production and you're I mean, you're along for the ride? Are there aspects of the wine, the spirits, the the port that light you up? And I think it all does. Mm-hmm. I mean, long story for another time. What brought me here to Paso was a Justin wine that he had made that I didn't know he had made. And didn't meet him for 15 years later. And then but that's sit, what brought me here. You to sit Paso. across that table from him. Were you as struck by him as he had to have been by you? <laughs> that's a story for another day. <laughs> oh my gosh. Look, so they're, you're with them. Cindy's kitchen table. Yeah. It was more of an interview, to be honest with you. Yeah. And um, I don't think I knew his history. You know, and where he had come from at the time. I knew he was a winemaker from the area, but we were interviewing more than one winemaker. It wasn't just Steve. But was that crazy that you ended up being with Steve and he had that wine, made that wine that brought you to Paso? It was very weird. It was very weird because I, I met him through Cindy. Yeah. So that was the, that was the communication. And then Cindy, there. you married them. I you officiated their wedding? I sure did. Wow. Back in 2009. How did you guys do your vows? Did you write them or we did wrote you? wrote them. Yeah. Is he a romantic guy? Pretty much. Yeah. Look at this. Can be when I try. Yeah. Oh. This is real. This is, this is really cool. And you married them, Cindy. I did. Wow. Yes. So cool. 
Well, I've always loved having you guys on the air. It's so much fun. I always love yeah. seeing you, Lola, Steve. It was really fun to meet you, Cindy. You as well. Yeah. Was this fun for you? It was a blast. Thank you. This was really cool. So how do people find Steinbeck Wines, taste your wines, and learn more about you? Steinbeckwines.com. We have a tasting room. We prefer by appointment. We can yeah. take some drop-ins during the weekdays, seven days a week. What are you learning is the upsell here? Is it like people are coming in for the wine, let's get them into the spirits before they leave? Or if they're here for the wine, let's just try and get them to join a wine club and we're good? Or if they're in for the spirits, don't forget the wine. I mean, how, how do you kind of we, treat all three? We offer, we offer like five different four or five different tasting options so you can do all wine wine and port spirits do, are people port. led here because they know there's such a diversification i think of, i think that's pretty cool they're looking for different things a lot of people come here for port still yeah that's where we started You're right a lot of people coming for the spirits wines we weren't really known for our wines we have quite a few people coming for that but i think we convert them once they come for either port or spirit we convert them over to try and our table wines as well and now so, why don't you just call the winery steve glossner made this <sighs> yeah <laughs> Uh, right, I mean, like, hello. I mean, we've been. If you've been listening the last hour, it's like I know. I never. I. I even though Pendrays, I'm is, buying the URL right now. Pendrays Steve Glossner made main this. Name. Com. And um, no, Pendrays. That's the distillery, though. Yeah. What about the Percaza? Where'd that come from? That was what the client called it, and we kept because we took the brand over, and we wanted to keep the clientele. We didn't. We made some. Made some minor changes in the label design and things of that nature. We wanted to keep their wine club membership in place, and so we really didn't change that much in the course of taking that brand over. And so I don't know. I've always been. I mean, there's a lot of wine brands out there that is someone's name, first name, last name, middle name, whatever it might be. I somehow wanted the brands to be able to stand on their own without necessarily. My involvement. Yeah. Just kind of think why. Uh, why do you think that was that? What were you going to say? We did consider doing a separate label at one yeah. point called Steve Glossner uh, Glossner Vineyard Series. Glossner Vineyard Series. We did. I'm okay with that. That yeah. sounds good. <laughs> and we did. Sounds really good. <laughs> we did. And and kind of like the Tariga that you're tasting right yeah. now, where you have just maybe two barrels that come from that, you know. That, that vineyard or whatever it was to try to do that. But that's kind of come and gone. You know, pandemic kind of slowed things down mm-hmm. on forward thinking. With What's with the, the pricing of the wines? Lola can tell you. Yeah, Lola, where do they sit? They range uh, from the high 20s for the whites and the rosé up to 50, maybe 52. Yeah, they're great. I mean, they yeah. super over deliver. They're beautiful wines. Yeah, I say Steve Gloucester series, 98 bucks. <laughs> we like, go for it. We just go home run. We swing for the fences, Steve. <laughs> Cindy, it was so much fun to hang out with you. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks, Adam. Steinbeckwines.com. That's right. Union Road. Yes. Steve, thanks for being here. And thanks for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it, Adam. This was fun. It's been fun, yeah. You're well, still going to try this tomorrow before you oh go. Oh, my God, of course. Yeah, no, yeah, no. I'm probably going to stay an uncomfortably long time and buy a lot of spirits. <laughs> so, yeah, you're like, this is the podcast ending. But, like, yeah, I'm going to probably hang out for a little while. And Georgie, thanks for being so nice to Georgie. Lola yeah, actually walked Georgie around. That I was so did. sweet of you. I did. He, he was, was a good boy. sweet dog. Very, yeah. yeah. My dogs are going to be very jealous. Oh, because they're going to smell mm-hmm, Georgie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have, it'll be a year in wow. a month. He's so cute. I got so. great pictures for you. I'll send them to you. Oh, you're so sweet. Yeah. Cool. Well, cheers, guys. Uh, thanks yeah. for sharing Thank you, the history of both the Steinbeck family, the farming, and the wine in the last 16 years, and then Steve, your journey, and Lola with the different brands here. It, it's so exciting. To, it's been a fun one. To see where wine takes you and to share yeah. it with me, has been. it's been really cool. Thank you. Yep. And cheers for cheers sharing where wine takes you. Yeah. Cheers. Give me that time, we'll get by, we pass on down till the job is Get out in the trees, it will simplify good company. 
Wow. So much thanks to both Cindy Steinbeck and Steve and Lola Glossner for their time, their conversation. Also to Corinne for being so helpful as well on site. Just as I was wrapping up my time with them, Joel showed up and I got a chance to catch up with Joel Peterson on all the late breaking Paso wine happenings. This will be helpful if you want to come out and visit for one of the big Paso weekends. We got some surprises, many upgrades, and Joel is going to share them with us. Cheers. Come on, tomorrow you're only on wine. You got to catch up. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you came a few minutes into that interview. Wasn't that interesting to listen to? Yeah, always fun catching up with you and your interviews. And I mean, obviously, I've known Steve and Lola for a while. And in a previous life, I actually worked them briefly. Really? Yeah. When I was at Solterra, we did some work with these guys. Oh, yeah. You never told. You didn't tell me about the. I thought I got his whole resume. It was very short. It was very short. But no, they were like doing the whole thing of like, are we Percaso? Are we Pendre? Oh, sure. We, you know, what are these things? And we were just figuring out some branding stuff. So yeah, I feel I learned because I've had Steve and Lola on the show several times throughout the years but I feel like I learned way more this time like, I had so much fun with them today yeah and and I mean the winemaking prowess is amazing I, oh my God. I moved here because of Justin myself so it's like yeah. I started I did the Harvest of 01 under Jeff Branco well his winemaking so, is so like, good I know that the wines got really Lola well. like, <laughs> that's so incredible that story and then that's so neat Cindy Steinbeck's awesome she was I, one of the first people I she met was really I fun to meet 20 years ago I really so. like meeting her yeah so there's a lot yeah. going on in Paso Wine right now. And right it's now exciting. it's like kind of we're hitting the throttle and like, look, I mean, you follow where you are locally. Like we've already been back to normal, but it's like we'll throttle. For sure. I mean, that has been a blessing for Paso Robles. And then now with as we plan for 2022, we've, we're actually bringing events back. So we're doing Blendfest over in the Cambria and Cayucas area. We talked about this on the last podcast. This is cool because it showcases some of our, our coastal cities yeah. on the Central Coast, like it, Cambria, San Simeon, and it, and the Paso Wine up there. It's, I mean, it's, it's a cool, cool combo. Because, I mean, what's better than like Paso Wine and the coasts? And we're only, you know, what is it, 22, what, 20 miles away? Yeah. If that, yeah. and so we can. And a lot of the wine is influenced by so what's coming from the coast. We pour our wines, and we get to enjoy the coast. We actually partnered with the Highway One Discovery Group because they actually want people to kind of come during February because it's a slower season for them. Yeah, and a draw for them besides the coast is the Pastoral Wine Country. We combine those. Yeah, they two. certainly don't need to do this in June no, or July or at August. All. <laughs> we're, we're happy to work with them. I mean, obviously, there's so many cute hotels there along. I Winston know. Beach, yeah. So we can pour wine. We can do some excursions, do some winemaker dinners, and then you know. You've eaten up there before. Um, sea chest. I've, I just I just did see you for the first time what? during the pandemic. It was amazing. I'd never eaten there. It yeah. was awesome. You sit at yeah. the bar or a table? Uh, we got a table, yeah. You sit up at the bar where they're making I everything? I went for my anniversary. Oh, We'd never gone. Really? Yeah. It's yeah. a beautiful, I mean, it's as cool. you know now. Yeah. And then a little bit of a wait well, to get like in. it's like cash only, right? So oh, yeah. You got to go to and, the ATM before, you, bring your cash. You wait. Like, you wait about oh, yeah. an hour or so. We waited like so, about 45 minutes out front. And there was like a little uh Not a bad view, though. Situation. You're waiting literally over the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. And yeah, it's pretty cool. So, yeah, it's a fun place to eat up there. So, Blendfest. Is there anything left as far as like dinners or? There's a couple of dinners available, so certainly Blendfest is the weekend of February 25th, 26th, and there's some winemaker dinners that are still have a few slots open. The grand tasting is sold out, but buy your tickets for next year. Okay, so then uh, it used to be Zinfest. It was Vintage Paso, and we just so we can welcome as many people under the Paso Love umbrella as we can. We give you da 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 Spring Release Weekend. That's right. We decided to rebrand that that weekend as Spring Release. Weekend. I like this because it's like you're celebrating. It's spring. It represents yeah. newness, and exactly. there's a lot of people. Whether it's their rosé, I mean, they're they're bottling, they're putting wines out yeah. at this time of year, and I think, I mean, this is. I think we've finally dialed it in. I think it's pretty it encompasses cool. anyone who's got a spring release, which is probably everyone. We're and allowing the wineries to be the spotlight, the shine. They can do dinners. They can do release weekends. They can do, you know, 
whatever they want to do in terms of bringing their wine club or guests to their wineries. But then we're going to do a Friday night tasting in the downtown city park. So that's Ooh, kind of fun. So yeah. a little, you know, three to 400 person tasting. We asked the wineries bring a couple, one or two wines that are brand new that they're releasing. And then we can allow people to kind of either have dinner before to have dinner afterwards, but it still celebrates us and our connection to downtown Paso Robles. Because at a certain point, like in May, when we usually are downtown, we're going to be somewhere else. Yeah. Which we can talk about now. That's <laughs> right. Winefest is going to be at the Pass Robles Event Center. Yeah. Pretty this exciting. is going to be exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's been a 30 years, so it's a big change. But I think it's a, I think it's a positive change. I think so, too. Downtown Paso is amazing right now. There's so many fun things. There's restaurants. There's bars. There's distilleries. There's just so many cool things happening in Paso and in downtown Paso. And to close it down for 48 hours for a wine festival sometimes seems a little wasteful. To close no, sure. I think down. you're onto something. And we got to bring in fencing and bathrooms and, and security all these things if you go to the event center we know it's the event center we know that that's the mid-state fair but we know it can handle we can it. make it great i mean shoot you think of like hospice to Rhone, uh, Wi-Fi. i mean there's a lot of yeah. big things that they do wine events well there they do and that's why we well. used to do zinfandel fest zinfandel fest years ago zinfest back in the day we right the firestone walker invitational beer festival there so we're going to use yeah. that footprint we're going to bring in you know two or three great live bands we're going to have probably set between 70 and 80 pastorables wineries wow. we're going to have seminars so we're going to have dinner there so it's the best and you know what you can park right across the street yeah, <laughs> and it's all right there. It's actually parking. really cool. It's going to be fun. So that's going to be the third yeah. week in May. Third week in May. Yeah, Wine May. Fest. So are, are tickets on sale? They're for on sale. Uh, we called it Pass. We it's always been called Paso Wine Fest by the locals. We actually rebranded it now. It's called Paso Wine Fest. Yeah, and um, it's going to be awesome. We're just we're super excited about the fact that we're going to be able to have event after two years of not having it. I know. And everyone's been calling us and emailing, thinking, "Is it back yet? Are we going to have it?" So mm-hmm. it's back. It's yeah. back. I love it. Paso Wine Fest, and obviously the wineries like in spring release weekend, all the wineries are doing something very special to try and get you out Exactly. There. We're trying to get as many as we can to pour downtown, and we know some some like to, some don't like to, because the fact that, like, hey, we're already booked, we've got rid of reservations. Right. But we generally think we're going to get probably between 80 to probably 80 wineries. That's half our membership. I mean, that's that's a lot of wine. Yeah. If you, and it's full for four hours. Oh, I'll have to check that out for professional reasons. I'll need you to be should, there. You should be there. For podcast <laughs> reasons, Joel, as the executive producer of this podcast, I'm telling you, I probably should be there. Yeah, let's figure that out. Okay, so Wine Fest weekend in May, and then is it even too early to talk about Harvest Wine weekend? I mean... Well, Harvest Wine weekend now, another change, is now called Harvest Wine Month. Again, wow. is so busy. Like, the Wineries King doesn't say, listen, we're, we... Can't we, do it harvest in a is, Harvest is a long time. Yeah. And the hoteliers said the same thing to us. They said, listen, can you just tell... Can you get people for the entire month. You know, that's a good idea. So. You know why? Because why put it all in one weekend and yeah. then everyone who wants to come quote for that weekend you get a lot of people who get asked out they're like oh my place was booked my this was booked my that was yeah. booked now spread it over the month people are still gonna they're gonna get love all month long all month this long is a really good idea and we too. get people from you know we know our backyard is, is southern california orange county san diego we've got the valley we've got northern california so let's get people a whole month to kind of figure out here and experience the wine harvest and figure out what it looks like in terms of people releasing yeah. new wines watching the crush activities winemaker dinners all those things too many good ideas joel people are going to think you're like ai <laughs> like you're not even are you yeah this is awesome. I'm excited for this year in Paso. I'm excited to try some spirits next. Yeah, you so. need some Amaro. We got some of the chamomile. Well, let's get you a glass. So The podcast is going great, by the way. Thanks oh, for I love everything it. you're doing. So. Did you like that show last week? It was great. It was yeah. super funny. Yeah. Weren't they funny? They're amazing. Did I you almost them. think, like, God, I don't even need Adam anymore? So my, wife used to, my wife used <laughs> to work at La Venture with both of them. And oh, so, is that right? Yeah. Because Dagny was the office manager, and then they both worked in the tasting room. Oh. Just, those girls are hilarious. What are some other episodes that you've been into? Um, well, I mean, the Wes Hagen ones was just fun because he was great. Just a kind so of smart. And I, and I the Eric it. Jensen one was good. Eric's good. I, they've all they've all been really fun. Yeah. Um, I just love I love listening to people. 
talk about what, what, why they've chosen Paso Robles and what yeah. their story is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think wine to me is like the long form, you know, that's why I love the, the podcast. Like I, we, you know, I talked about this three years ago when we right. said, let's make a podcast because yeah. wine isn't a, isn't a 30 second glass of wine. It isn't even a three minute glass of wine. It's a whole conversation. And the more we can draw in the personalities, which have made Paso Robles so special, then yeah. we're going to have success. Yeah. I mean, it's sitting across a table with someone and talking and yeah, that's a good point. Joel Peterson, PasoWine.com is the executive Cheers. director. Also the executive producer of this podcast here. Cheers. We got some Amaro. Yeah. Here. Good to see you, man. Thanks Good for coming by. Thanks for having us. Thanks to Joel Peterson for the chat and to he and his team at Paso Wine for all the good things they are always doing to further Paso Wine Country. Wow, jam-packed show today. Thank you for hanging out. Make sure you visit PasoWine.com for any and all things Paso. Before your next trip, it's essential. Check out PasoWine.com and on Insta at PasoWine. Original music for Where Wine Takes You, Good Company, performed by Moonshiner Collective. Where Wine Takes You is executive produced by Joel Peterson and Paso Wine. Associate producer, Jen Bravo. The podcast is recorded, edited, and produced by yours truly. You can follow me on Insta. Always got some pics up there from the show at Adam on the Air. And next time you are cruising the Central Coast, you can tune me in on your radio, my morning show, Up and Adam in the Morning, weekday morning 6 to 10 on Wine Country Radio, along with the stuff I do with the Cork Dorks and more, The Crush 92.5. Spelled with a K, K K-R-U-S-H. You can log on, crush925.com to stream. We even got a free app in your smartphone. Well, I am so glad that you connected with us here again. I am your host, Adam Montiel. Until next time, grab that glass, fill it with some Paso wine, lift it high, and cheers to maybe finding a place in your life where you can embrace reinvention and always enjoy sharing where wine takes you. And give me that passion, get by, we pass on down till the job is Get out in the trees, it will simplify and good come. Give me that moonshine, get by, we pass on down till the job is Get out in the trees, it will simplify and good come. Give me that moonshine, get by, we pass on down till the job is out in the trees, we will simplify in good company. With that moonshine, we'll get by. We pass on round till the job is dry. Camped out in the trees, we will simplify in good company.